Dr. Kenneth Bach is a board-certified physician and the best-selling author of Brain Inflamed. Over the course of his 35-year career, he's become known for his unique ability to identify and untangle the most complex, multi-system, multi-symptom medical cases. And today, we're going to chat about neuroinflammation, Lyme disease, mold, and our immune system. Kenneth, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be with you, Jason. So it's great to have you. I loved your book, Brain Inflamed. You touched on a number of really important issues. We're at a time in 2021 when mental health is, I think, on a lot of people's radar. And you start off the book, there's a statistic that really jumped out. The number of 12 to 17-year-olds suffering from mental health disorders has doubled. And this is like pre-COVID. And I think things are a hell of a lot worse coming out of COVID with kids being out of school and social distancing and all that. So who knows how bad it is today, but it's bad. And so what do you think is driving this? So first of all, that's always the great question. It's the question I always ask when I see any patient is what's driving it? So this is more on a macroscopic level, what's driving it, right? And, and I think it's, the truth is, I think it's, firstly, is the toxicity in the environment. It's not genetics because they don't change. And when I they talk about the toxicity in the environment, it's it's much broader than just chemicals and heavy metals, which I think there, there is a reality there. But I think a stress is a big one. And as you saw in the book, stress does kind of induce and lead to inflammation and brain inflammation as well as the gut-brain axis inflammation. So I think kids are just more and more stressed. So they're getting exposed. So, so you take kids, when we were, I'm a bit older than you, but when we were kids. We were able to just be kids. We did all this stuff. We hung out with friends. I think kids now, I think number one, like in New York City, I feel like kids are losing their childhoods. I think like, so I, I think it starts early, but even, uh, and as you get older into the teenage years with the uh, social, this is before COVID, but the pressures of social media, the, the, the need to be perfect, to be on all the time, the ability to be embarrassed by people taking your photo when you're in an inopportune time to, to be bullied or cyberbullied, FOMO. I mean, the need to be up on intense amount of information. It's just like they're not just hanging out and being kids. I think kids are pushed there in terms of performance. They're getting, you know, more and more than I've ever seen. And especially I talk about New York City. I grew up in New York City. It's like having rather than just play sports, you have to perform on a travel team. If you're music, you have to be the best in the band. You know, it's there's a lot of not just hanging out anymore and allowed to be kids, I think. And I do think that it's a chronic stress on kids. And you couple that with exposures, like I think kids are getting more exposed to the plasticizers and pesticides and other chemicals and heavy metals. I just think it is leading to more and more mental health disorders. I mean, it's just, to me, it's just a... It's a confluence, and it's almost a confluence of many factors, but I do think they're mostly environmental. So for a parent listening, myself included, we're saying, okay, the school system, whether it's public or private, it's not perfect. I do think a lot of things got turned on their head there with COVID. You're seeing a lot of people trying to create pods, just revisiting what quote-unquote school looks like. In a perfect world, 
What do you think school looks like? Because you're hitting on like curriculum, pressure, social media, like if you had to generalize like for for a parent, what does a perfect school setting kind of look like? Is it like more free play? Is it less less second languages (laughs) earlier on? (laughs) Well, oh, less second languages. It's interesting. Yeah, because I'm actually I'm I'm actually in favor of of kids learning a second. Like I wish my kids. Like well, they start they start here in New York and other schools. They started kindergarten. When I grew up, it started in, uh, I'm 46. It started in seventh grade. That's when second language started. Yeah, that's when we started too, even. I'm a little yeah. bit. But, but no, I, I think, oh, by the way, the thing I didn't mention that I should have mentioned is the microbiome. Because the microbiome definitely affects mood and mood disorders. And I think microbiomes are changing. And that's environmental as well because of diets and, and toxicants and stuff. So And antibiotics and stuff. So I, I don't want to... That's a, that's an important issue, actually. Sure. But you know how I think school should look for kids is that I do think kids should allow, be allowed to be kids. I, I don't think kids should have every minute scheduled. Seriously, I mean, I really don't. And even the playtime is almost very scheduled and structured. I mean, kids need to. I mean, I hate to say it, they just need to screw off and be kids and be allowed to laugh and and hang out. And it doesn't always have to be productive. I mean, I'm aware of. Parents in New York, and I've heard this many times because I'm two hours north of the city, but people travel up to see me on a regular basis. And I mean, almost preconception, they're thinking about schools. Kid is born and they're already preparing them for the preschool. And now kids are getting interviewed. You know this probably. Kids are getting- Oh yeah, inter- I, do, I do know. We, we've lived it. <laughs> okay. So kids are getting pre- interviewed for preschool and they're stressed and they're getting tutored for an interview for preschool. I mean, <laughs> you have to laugh, but it, it's a tragic laugh on some level for me. I really mean it. I mean, and I'm not against, listen, I was very good in school, very small, all that stuff. My kid, you know, So I'm into that stuff, but there's got to be a balance. And I think we're so much, and it's, oh, I used to say this for us in, in medical school. I, I, would, I went a different way. I, I, I actually uh, learned a lot about American studies. I actually majored in American Indian studies, botany and stuff. So I was always interested in this stuff before I went to medical school. But a lot of the people in my class, it was right from the beginning. Everything was, you know, high school was for the best college. College was for the best medical school. Medical school was the best residency. Residency was the best fellowship. And that always justified you working 24-7 because it was going to get better. But at a certain point, you look around and say, God, all that time's passed and everything like that. And it's kind of a little, again, I say a little bit sad. And when that goes away from this you know, contingent of doctors and who are, who are working really hard in, in that path to little kids. And as they get older, in that same way, almost putting it up, oh, you got it for this and that. I just think there has to be a way that we learn that we make relaxation and hanging out and, and being with friends and family in a very easy and not doesn't have to be a productive way part of our lifestyle. I do. I feel very strongly about that, actually. And let kids be kids. Yeah, I, 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 I hear you. You're preaching to the the choir. I agree with everything you just said. And and we could spend like hours on the subject of <laughs> the flaws of the educational system, specifically in in a lot of metropolitan cities. But we'll move off that, and we'll get to kind of the bigger, meatier topics that apply to everyone, and not just parents and kids. And so you have this great quote in the book. You say that two imperatives to good health are flexibility and resiliency and you have this awesome illustration of what you call an immune kettle 
where you detail, you go into great detail, these multiple layers. Can you kind of walk us through how you think about flexibility and resiliency and then your immune kettle? I just love the concept. Yeah, no, great. Well, I do too. So I'm glad. I'm really glad that you love it. Because, And I look at flexibility and resiliency on two levels, the microscopic and the macroscopic. In other words, so the cellular level and then the organismal level of us as human beings. So, And I'll give you an example of what I mean by that. It starts, let's say, if you look at blood vessels. And blood vessels, they come from your heart and their arteries. They get smaller to arterioles. And eventually they go to these capillaries, these one-celled blood vessels where all the action takes place, where the nutrients come out and the waste come back in, and oxygen comes out and things. That's how you nourish cells. And then it gets to the venules and veins and stuff. But So in a one-celled blood vessel, the red cell has got to pass through. And a red cell is stiff. If a red cell, not it, if a red cell is stiff and inflexible, it is very hard to get through this tiny capillary. So a very flexible, resilient, but really flexible red cell gets through much easier and can do the exchange of oxygen and nutrients and take on the waste and stuff. So that's at a cellular level. And I think at the level of us as humans, being flexible to me and resilient is one of the most defining moments of health. I mean, I have, I'm have i a pretty simplistic guy. The, the two major nutrients I say for the immune system are love and laughter. Everybody I ask the question, they'll say uh, vitamin D, vitamin D. Yeah, those are great. Love and laughter. I mean that. And flexibility and resilience in terms of your life. I mean, the ability to recognize that you have to accept life on its terms. It doesn't mean resignation, because I'm not into resignation. I mean, obviously, you move forward with things. But the ability, I tell patients, if you can't accept where you are and then be flexible enough to do what it takes to move forward, the first thing is to accept where you are, not resign. And so... So flexibility and resilience, just in, in every way we live our life, something comes at us, we have to be flexible enough almost to handle it and move through it. And so I, I love that it's being talked about more now because I felt this for a long time, but I really think it dictates health on every level, cellular and how we live in the world with our families. Come on. I mean, do we have to be flexible with our spouses and, and, and resilient when something comes at us and with the kids as well? So I love that you love that because it really, to me, it's key. So that's that. Then we go to the immune kettle, which really this comes in there as well. I actually talked about this immune kettle in my first book, 1997, The Road to Immunity, interestingly enough. But I really have resurrected it in a much deeper way. And obviously, I have 20 years since then. So, it, And it came to me at first when, because I think stress is very important, contributed to people's illnesses, just like I was talking about how it can contribute to the kids in terms of their mental health disorders. But we look at somebody who's stressed and they get symptomatic and we say, oh, it's all stress. But the the value I think of the immune kettle is that, yes, frequently stress may be the largest component of the immune kettle. Maybe I should start, take a step back and say, for people listening who haven't read the book, the immune kettle is how I envision health. It's the health of the immune system, but also just general health. And there are different layers. The first one being the basic is your genetic predispositions, which we all have. That we can't control. We get them from our parents or what have you. But the the thing I, I love about the immune kettle is number one, the genetics are just predispositions. And a lot of what I do is the 
nutritional modulation of genetic expression. You can actually modulate genetic expression so it's not a theta complete. So, I mean, that's the encouraging thing. But on, layered on top of your genetics are all your environmental ex- exposures or even things you don't think of, nutrient deficiencies and I, what I call insufficiencies. You don't have to be frankly deficient to have more needs than somebody else that aren't being met. Allergies and sensitivities that many of us have, some are easier to see like a you know, runny nose and, and itchy eyes in the spring, but others are much more covert. Hormone imbalances, whether they be thyroid or adrenal, the ones I speak a lot about in the book, but as people get older, it could be menopausal or testosterone for men and things like that. And then you move to toxicants, things like heavy metals, mercury, lead, exposures in the environment and the plasticizers like BPA, phthalates, and then all the pesticides and things. And then the next levels you move into, one of them is infections, very big infections, especially where I am in, in Dutchess County. And because I treat thousands of patients with tick-borne disease like Lyme and co-infections, not just from Dutchess County, from all over, these are things that can really add uh, layers to the immune kettle. And the key is that these layers can be different sizes. So if they're small, the lower you are, the whole concept is the lower you reside in the immune kettle, the more reserve you have. And you have to look at people and say, boy, this it's like we said, flexibility and resiliency. It, it, this person can handle so much more stress than somebody else. Stress is frequently the thing that's layered on all these other components. So if you're riding very high in the immune kettle because of your genetics, because you have a lot of nutrients, unmet nutrient deficiencies or insufficiencies, a lot of allergy sensitivities, maybe some hidden infections, viral or even tick-borne that have not been dealt with, some hormonal imbalances, immune imbalances, things like that, you get a level of stress that may not, if you're laying low, Jason, may not put you over so we don't see symptoms. Another person, let's say, is laying very high in there, you get the same stress, it throws them over, and that's when they get their symptoms. And that's why where the resiliency and, and flexibility comes in, if we can lower ourselves by paying attention to all the layers, stress included, but not limiting it to stress. And that's the big point I want to make is people will sometimes just focus only on stress and they'll tell people that's their whole illness is stress and they do them a disservice because if you attend to these other layers, even with the same stress, I'm not saying you shouldn't attend to the stress, they can feel better. And so that's, uh, I think it's a good model for health. It's really helped me and it helps me explain this to patients and then patients get the importance of this more, I don't use the word holistic really, because that gets banded about too much, but a more comprehensive, integrative approach, because you have to think of all these things. So there's a lot to unpack there. And you mentioned the microbiome earlier. We touched on the immune system. And in the book, you talk about the gut immune connection and the gut brain connection leading to the gut brain immune axis. So could you talk about the gut brain immune axis? Yeah, yes, definitely. So in our field of integrative medicine, I mean, I've been doing this since I got out of residency and uh, I, I joined an older integrative doc in, in 82. So, and then I started my own practice in Rhinebeck and now Red Hook in 83. So I've been doing it a long time and the gut has always been important to me and to my colleagues in this field. And I think thankfully it's finally getting recognized, right? The microbiome, I mean, probably five years ago, it wasn't even being taught. I mean, now it's like the, the biggest thing. And so the gut-brain immune axis is such, it all starts in the gut, really. And I always say to people, you got to, firstly, the relationship 
is really clarified by the fact that 70 to 75% of your immune system lies under that one layer of epithelial cells that separates what's called the lumen, which is the opening in your gut, from what's underneath in terms of your intestines and your colon. So why would we have 70 to 75% of our immune system? I mean, it would seem like crazy if it wasn't important. Well, I mean, I think somehow it's amazing how well this body works. Because think of what goes into your mouth, into our guts on a daily basis. First of all, the, the, the typical American diet, uh, which is SAD, which is sad, is a lot of junk. So the immune system is there to have to recognize on an instant, instantaneous basis, is this benign? Is this friend? Is this foe? And has to react. I mean, it's just amazing to me how quickly it does react and how appropriately it does most of the time. Not all the time. Obviously, we have inflammatory conditions in the colon as well as other places. But you have to imagine how much we're putting in there, how many decisions have to be made. And there's all these messenger molecules communicating. And there are many things that, and there's this barrier. There's a mucus, there's an epithelial layer. And then there's a mucus barrier above that to protect the colon and to help us make these decisions and things and protect from toxicants and viruses and the abnormal bacteria. So, But if you get certain kinds of infections in there, if you eat certain kinds of inflammatory peptides like gluten and dairy, casein and, and like wheat, barley and rye and dairy, if you have xenobiotics like chemicals, if you have certain drugs can do it and stress, they can make the tight junctions between the epithelial cells, which keep everything intact and try to regulate what goes in and out, goes in and out. They can get uh, uncoupled and you have what's called a leaky gut in the vernacular leaky gut and larger molecules get in than are supposed to. They get presented to the immune system, which is right there. And it sets off a whole cascade of, of reactions, informational molecules, which ultimately get into the systemic circulation and get up to the blood brain barrier, which is very similar to that lining of the gut, except it's not an epithelial cell. It's called an endothelial cell. It's a blood vessel lining cell. One cell thick, just like the epithelium in the gut. And I have slides when I give lectures that are a really nice one now that shows how similar they look and the, and the proteins that couple and make the tight junction are the same. And so the things that disrupt them are the same. So if you disrupt those tight junctions in the gut, you allow it to get, quote, leaky. You allow it to things to pass through. They get up to the blood-brain barrier, and now we're dealing with increased permeability or decreased integrity of the blood-brain barrier. And the reason that's important is it allows not only toxicants, but in, in the case of brain inflammation, it allows inflammatory mediators that would have been kept out to get in, and then it wreaks havoc. And so when I used to lecture a lot before COVID, when I was lecturing in real life, now I'm starting to do, obviously, we do more webinars, but in, in person, I, you know, see with thousand people and I would say leaky gut, leaky brain, I'd always have them repeat it once or twice. So they get it, leaky gut, leaky brain. And some people would try to like, act like it was, oh yeah, right, leaky gut, leaky brain. But there is a lot more information coming out in the scientific literature supporting this. It's a very important concept.
And so does it come back to the immune kettle? As I think about kids, I think about diversity of foods and kids will be kids. Some kids are are fine on gluten and dairy and and they try everything and some kids aren't. So does this again come back to the, the kettle, if you will, where you get these layers and for some people it sets them off, combine other potential issues, and then for other people, they're just fine. Yeah, so the genetics are one. So I can test people like one of the patients or I test for celiac genetics. In addition to celiac, we check for the genetics. If somebody has celiac genetics, they're more predisposed. But it's not only, it's very interesting. It's not only the gluten that causes issues, even in, in, in celiac, it's felt like it's really, it's a, almost a triad. It's the, it's the gluten coupled with the leaky gut. Something also right. affects that, that. So, and that's when you get your celiac. Most people don't have celiac that I do. They have a gluten sensitivity, but it's not at the level of celiac. So you also mentioned Lyme and tick-borne illnesses, and we're not going to go into Lyme because we'd spend like three days on the topic. It's, it's very complicated, but I do want to spend time on tick-borne illnesses. Both scare the crap out of me. And so can you talk about some of those other tick-borne illnesses that are around the country and not just exclusive to the Northeast? You know, Lyme is... In some ways, exclusive to certain areas, but there are a lot of tick-borne illnesses out there. And what are you seeing? What should we look for as we kind of enter that season? Well, first of all, I think that the key is to recognize that they exist, they're real, because there's this whole thing of the polarization of Lyme disease, which I am so unhappy about because I think it really does patience and injustice. Where so you realize it's in every state. It's not like you're in a safe state. Lyme disease has been diagnosed in every state. Obviously, there are, there are hotbeds where I am. It's one of the most in the country, in Dutchess County, in the Hudson Valley, but Long Island, the Hamptons is huge. Cape Cod, Nantucket, Martha's Vineyards is huge. Northern California is huge. Oregon, you know, so, the, and, and then the Midwest, there are certain places in the, so, but there, but even if it's not huge, it's still there. And so, although the doctors may not see it as much, one thing, the first thing is awareness. And the other thing is to be aware of is that it can look like anything. And so the problem is, I, I remember when I was in residency, and we would see patients coming in the clinic, and they would have a, a laundry list of complaints. And whenever it was like above 10, I was basically told as a resident, give them, anxiety, give them Valium, it's anxiety, send them home. Honest to God. Now I have patients that may come in with 20 complaints. And obviously, I don't just give them Valium and go home, but I try to figure out what's causing it. And thankfully, most of the time, I, I can. I always, but most of the time, I can if you listen and you look and you think hard. But that's the concept that when you can have so many complaints, it's probably psychological. And the fact is that these tick-borne diseases cause this myriad of complaints. And they cover different organ systems. In fact, when I give my impressions, I frequently say multi-symptom, multi-system disorder complex multi-symptom multi-disorder and I'll and I'll put my impression I suspect tick-borne disease I have to try to diagnose this and because it can range from the skin rashes to the heart with palpitations and heart blocks but let's just say palpitations shortness of breath neurologic frequently brain fog numbness tingling and and burning dysesthesias which are pains and then also general fatigue headaches and then with like some of the co-infections, that's where we have to say Lyme can do all these things, but also there are co-infections. There are little other organisms in the in the tick, either bacteria or a protozoa. Let's say Bartonella is another bacteria, 
that people frequently hear, of course, Bartonella rage. So I have a lot of the kids, as you read about in the book, who really rage. I had one today and one yesterday. I mean, I'm talking about rages where they put holes in the doors. They can be homicidal, suicidal. I wonder how many some of the kids that have done some terrible things over the years may have been afflicted with some of the things I talk about in the book, like brain inflammation, but have never been diagnosed. So Bartonella can also give you these kind of these purplish, reddish purplish stretch marks. And they're in areas, they don't have to be in the areas where you've gained or lost weight because then it can be just stretch marks. But I've seen them in the middle back where you wouldn't see them behind the knee. And they can be pretty deep purple or, or purplish red. And that's a clue. They're called Bartonella tracks. That can be a clue. Babesia is a little protozoa, which is not a bacteria, more like in the amoeba family, that causes you to have fever, chills, sweats, and air hunger. I feel like you can't get enough air and sometimes cough and shortness of breath. So when I ask all these questions, rather than think, oh, the person's got air hunger, they're just anxious. And of course, that's the next side I'm going to talk about in a second. These are clues to some of the tick-borne illnesses. So I'll have a sense of what may be going on just from a very detailed history. And the thing about kids and the adolescents and teens is that sometimes in them, the only symptoms of tick-borne disease are neuropsychiatric. You don't see the joint aches or the muscle aches or the headaches or fever chills, this or that. You may seem fatigued, but may not. And all you see are anxiety or OCD or panic attacks or depression. And sometimes the rage, I call it mood dysregulation with rage. And so it's easy just to diagnose them with psychological. That, that's really one of the main reasons I wrote this book. Because if these kids are diagnosed with psychological illnesses, and they have psychological presentations, don't get me wrong. So yeah, they can carry a diagnosis of mood disorder, anxiety, uh, panic attacks. But if you don't get to what's underlying, if they have a tick-borne disease, they'll never get better. So all the psychotropics in the world and all the therapy will not get them better. So in your estimation, tick-borne illnesses, it sounds like they're they're often underdiagnosed. How many, if you were to guesstimate, how, how many, what percentage of kids do you think are affected and have no idea? It's hard to give a percentages, actually, because number one, I've never seen that in the literature that I've seen that could give a percentage of what it is. Um, and I, I have a skewed practice. So I see people that come right. from the world seeking me, and I find it very considerably. So for me, it's a very considerable percentage. And I would suspect, obviously, it's somewhere in the middle or more towards the lower. It's not nearly as much as I see, probably. But I think it's, I, I would safely say it's a heck of a lot more than people think. Something else that, uh, you know, ticks scare me. And, and the other big thing that scares me, probably a little bit more pervasive, but you tell me is mold. And so can you talk about mold, the health implications? And to me, the big question is always, how, how do you know if you have it? How do you know if it's in your house? How, how do you know if it's affecting you and your health and then what to do next? So firstly, I think the first thing would be if you have lots of symptoms, especially things with mold, you know, you can get dizziness, lightheadedness, you can get brain fog, you can get skin rashes. So you can get respiratory stuff. So there's a lots of stuff you can get from mold that are unexplained, that other workups are done, they don't find them. And you look at your house and you say, hey, have we had leaks in the house? 
And some people know that they've had leaks, but never think about mold. Some people smell mold, but don't even think that it can affect them. Other people don't smell it. So the first thing, again, just like I said, tick-borne, is awareness that mold can cause problems, and it can. And then it would be like asthma. I mean, that's another, that's the respiratory, that's a, a no-brainer that it, it can that worse than asthma. But then you, so you can figure it. Number one, if you've had leaks, that's a clue. Uh, if you have a, a damp basement or something and, and you actually see mold, sometimes people see mold, but just don't pay any mind. But you can have, I mean, you can have somebody come in who there's some really good, reputable mold inspectors that come in. And usually you want a mold inspector who doesn't do the remediation. You want a mold inspector who comes in, they give a very detailed report. It's not cheap. And then there are companies, and I know some really good companies, that will do a very thorough mold remediation. It's very expensive. I mean, I actually had it done in my own home, and, uh, and it's been amazing. But, you know, it was definitely a big expense. But it, there was... And it, sometimes you'll discover when you, have, you do the remediation, I discovered something was blocked in a, in a drainage thing and, and it was like leaking into the basement. I mean, so it was really a problem. And by, they said it was, a, it was near my kids' rooms, which is, and we actually started to smell something. And it was like three, four, five weeks. It took a long time, but, and we had to do amazing drainage stuff. So it was a big deal. But you know what? You get rid of the problem. It's the same thing we're talking about here. So you have to be committed to it. They said to me, we weren't sick, so most people would never do it. But people only wait till they're really sick. In terms of that, you mentioned the companies and costs. I am curious, are there companies offhand that you know that, that do that type of work or websites people can look at if they're not local to New York? And I am curious, like the cost range just for someone. I'm oh. sure like everyone at some point or another has had a leak and do they have a smell or not? Who knows? Well, I think it's a level and degree. I mean, I have, there are, the one that we use was in New Jersey and the company that remediate is in New York, but they travel. Apparently these companies now will travel because they're so in need. And so I can look them up and give it. Yeah, uh, we'll put it in the show notes. I think people are interested. Yeah, I, the question yeah, comes I, up a lot, but then it's like people always ask, well, how do I know? I can give them. And the, and there was a book just written called, I think it's called The Mold Medic by the guy, uh, Michael Rubino, who runs American Restoration, which I think, it, it, I think I, I'm hoping I'm getting the name right, but it's a company that does mold remediation and it's called The Mold Medic. But I can give you names and you know email like contact info i can send it to you and so i think it's good to know because these i have to tell you they, they were great not cheap and the and the mold inspection company they're so thorough they come up with a thing i mean they come in basic in this full gear because they and he opened i have an exercise room he opened the door and said i don't want you going in here anymore and this is my exercise is it's not in my house it's under my guest house but literally from that time on until it was remediated it has been remediated I didn't go in just because he said, I, I don't want you being exposed, especially when you're exercising. So this is what people should know about. Luckily, I have strong, we have strong constitutions. Nobody got sick. But, but the point is, there are people who are getting sick that would never know that because I didn't smell it in the, in, in the room. He did. He, he yeah. Well, I think it's scary. And I'll speak for myself. It's like you take care of yourself, you eat right, you exercise, you do all the right things. And then there are these external environmental factors, whether it's mold or maybe a tick or something else. It's like, oh, geez, I'm doing everything right. But this thing over here, I have no control over. And I think a lot of people are in that boat. And as we started the show, you talk about what's going on with, with kids. 
and the mental health epidemic and these external factors are playing a huge role. Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, part of it could be discouraging in some way, but I think you could look at it as, is that whole thing of acceptance is like, listen, in some way we have to accept life on its terms and you do what you can. I teach that to my kids. You'll probably teach that to your kids. You can only control what you can control. There are things, if somebody responds in a certain way, you can't control their response. I'll teach that to my kids. You can control what you do. And it's the same thing in our environment. You can make your environment as good as it can be. But if there's an unknown, it's, you, you don't know it yeah. until a certain point. So, But I, I think that's the, 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 one of my favorite chapters I ever wrote was in my first book. There was the last chapter called Healing Begins with Acceptance. And part of it talks about accepting life on its terms. And I think it really, if you think about it, it's such an important, I learned this from these two mentors who are like kind of psycho, psychological, spiritual therapists, mentors. And think about that, accepting life on its terms. Initially, it can almost set you off. No, what do you mean? It's like, I'm, I'm not going to accept that. But it's not resignation. It's just being, that's the flexibility and resiliency to do what you can. But also, I remember having a banker, very successful with chronic fatigue. And the first thing you have to do is Stop saying what you used to be able to do and accept that this is where you are. I'm going to work with you to get better, but you can't live in what you used to do. You know what I'm saying? It's really important. So on that note, kids will be kids. Teens will be teens. We've all been there. And as a parent listening, what advice do you have for parents who are health forward and want to do the right thing? But at the same time, kids will be kids and teens will be teens. And if you tell them... You can't do something or you're too regimented, it's going to blow up. So what's your general advice for parents? You, you are asking, seriously, you're asking terrific questions. And as, as a, maybe an older parent now, who's, and my kids are 31 and 26, right? So you learn a lot from what you've done with your kids. And I, one of the things I would say to parents, because I see, I see thousands and thousands of kids and thousands of families, and the way that people raise kids is so different. I mean, it's pretty striking, actually, right? I mean, I'll have... Parents in my office that are really, especially with autistic kids, are very strict and really it's kind of helpful for the autistic kid to have really structure and things. And others who let their kid wander around without anything and they can come out, destroy my office, maybe go behind my, and not say a word. It's really amazing. And, and I am quite strict in my office and I know how to deal with the kids because it's important. And on the other hand, I'm, I, I really know how to bond with it. That's one of the reasons why I think I have success with teenagers like Yesterday, I had a kid from uh, a city who you know, had issues, and I had the mother get out, and I sat with the kid, and I like to really talk to them and bond with them, and hopefully they can see I'm pretty cool, and they can talk, and then I bring the mother back in, but not, uh, but want to make sure that they know that I'm there for them. That's why I'm not against them. So what do we do with kids is that I think, Listen, I'm into very healthy foods, always have been. And I raise my kids that way. But yet if you're too strict with your kids, I can guarantee you that they will go to college and nonstop be eating Domino's and garlic puffs and pizza. And I can tell you from... So you learn that there has to be an ability to be flexible. You make a very strong foundation of foods and lifestyle, make sure they exercise and everything like that, right? But that you don't, you, you don't be too intense in, and not allow them to be themselves. And like, so if they go to a birthday party and they're going to have a little maybe, if they have to be gluten-free, obviously you make sure they're gluten-free and dairy-free and maybe make their own dessert, but let them have a sweet. I know, listen, it's not good, but you have to be a little more moderate. 
And when you do that, you allow your kids to have a much healthier approach to, to foods, in, from my perspective. And, and that goes through the years. And listen, even with things I hate that, I mean, listen, kids are going to do things. Kids are going to drink. Kids may smoke a little marijuana as teenagers. There's whatever your belief is, you have to recognize that teenagers will be teenagers and somehow work that in with a communication thing and et cetera, et cetera. And not because the people that are the most regimented, I think, really end up pushing their kids the furthest away and sometimes doing not such good so you did mention marijuana and as a as a parent i am a little bit concerned that marijuana is becoming generally accepted and the data on marijuana usage and the developing teenage brain is not good yeah no i i understand that and so it's tough there's all sorts of mental health and i i get all the the why people are embracing it and so forth but for for the anecdotally i've I'm not a square. I've tried everything. I've done everything. I had a very good time, too good of a time, if you will. But I've also seen it lead to serious mental health issues for people I grew up with. And and the data is there. Like it's, yes, it's not. Yes. So it's like, I hear that. And so I'm not, I don't want to, I'm much more a proponent of CBD when we talk about inflammation. So different. One is THC, one doesn't. So. Yeah. Well, no, some CBD has a little THC, but I, the ones yeah. I use for kids, but I use a lot of CBD with kids. And it's really helpful for anxiety and helpful for mood disorders sometimes and sleep. So I use a lot of, uh, you know, pharmaceutical grade CBD. But there, what I was just trying to make the point, I, I didn't want to, in some way, get into, I understand what you're saying. It's yeah. just a matter of if a, a parent, kids going through stuff and, and a parent has this incredible, like, oh my God, my kid smoked marijuana. You have to understand that somehow maybe part. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, no, saying, I, you know what I'm saying. So yeah, I don't, no, I, I get that. But I'm curious, like as a physician and we're talking about the like brain and inflammation, like does that concern, like it concerns me as a parent that like, okay, great. Like I walk in New York and through the park and everyone's smoking weed and, and like to each his own. But I worry about, again, the data and the science around like the young developing teenage brain and marijuana usage is, it's yeah, not good. Not. But on the other hand, CBD. Two different things. I, yeah. I love CBD, yeah. hemp, yeah. the endocannabinoid system. 100% understand the difference. Completely different ballgame. Yes, I got you. Yeah. I hear you. I hear you. That, this is one of the trials and tribulations of uh, yeah. growing up. So on, you know, you, you talk about genetics in the book and you definitely piqued my interest. Our, our listeners have heard me talk about my homocysteine and MTHFR a zillion times, but you do talk about the MTHFR gene, which is like 40% of the population has. My wife and I both have it, which means our two daughters definitely but have you, it. You have homozygous that's the difference both of you yeah we have the c677t gene yeah yeah i'm the double whammy and so we've got what worked for me what brought my homocysteine from 63 to 12 was a a cocktail of b vitamins to you know help support methylation but we've got a a four-year-old and a a two-year-old and they're healthy they're fine they're flourishing they got tons of energy and so my question to you is okay we know that they're going to have this issue is it too early? They take probiotics. Is it too early to I worry about getting them? Is there such a thing as too early to supplement for kids? No, no, actually, because I see a lot of young kids, especially 
the young siblings of kids I've helped. Parents will bring it sometimes after they have a second baby, they bring it very shortly, within months. I actually talked to the mothers, like certainly when you're up, I, I would hope that she took methylfolate when she was pregnant. I hope that- Yeah, would. we both did, yeah. Good, good, yeah. So that's, so no, it's not too early. I give kids, especially kids who are C-section kids and or not getting breastfed, but I give them probiotics, prebiotics right from the beginning. I think every C-section- so we, we do that. We do probiotics with her. I think a lot of parents do- probiotics with kids, but I am curious beyond that. No, no. So there's a vitamin D. I would tell you that I think most kids need vitamin D. So we give that at a very young age. And also, see, it's never too early to look at some of the things that are roadmaps. So the thing about the you know, homozygous C6, 770, the MTHFR, that's a roadmap. That doesn't tell you, it certainly tells you that you may have an elevated homocysteine, uh, as you get older and adult, you may have thrombosis, thrombotic episodes. So that you, know, you want to be aware of that. But but methylation is so involved is involved in so many different meta- metabolic and detoxification that I think it's not too early. I mean, the thing is the dosage. See, when I I right. very young kids, so the key is you can't be giving these huge doses to these kids, but you can adjust the doses. You know, I mean, so I your children, I would definitely have on low doses of B vitamins, but methylated. So you'd have to make sure, sure you have the active methylated cobalamin, methylcobalamin, methylfolate. So is there, I'm curious, is there a specific product you like for kids in terms of methylation? I use, the problem is the, the ones that are out there are very low dosage. And I'm not saying I want to do real high doses on kids, but if they have a homozygous mutation, like your kids will have a polymorphism they probably need a little bit higher doses. So I would usually have them take some, We I wouldn't say there's one product. There's liquids, there's powders. I made a multivitamin that had very reasonable kinds of levels of B vitamins and other things. I made it for kids that have issues. So it's a pretty good dose. Sometimes I'll just take a little bit of a, a capsule and I'll make, you know, I'll have parents make like health healthful smoothies and you just drop a little bit of it in, maybe a quarter of a cap or something. Or So there are liquids. The problem with the liquids for kids and stuff, they're very low dose, most of them. And right. if you want to you wanna really, like, let's say, uh, you, you'd want to give, like, let's say you, your kids may be like, what, 40 pounds, 30 pounds? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, so, you, yeah. you know, you look at them, if you look at them very, for, for a parent to say, hey, my kid's 30 pounds, it's like one-fifth of an adult. My kid's one four, 40 pounds. So you can think about just using just an idea of using those that fraction of it, but it's not to. I don't think the only thing if you use methylating agents, you want to make sure you're using a little more of a certain B vitamin. You want to have a background of the other B vitamins. That's what I would always. Sure. Yeah. So in closing, I'm going to come back to inflammation. You talk about inflammation in detail in the book, and inflammation leads to all sorts of bad things we don't want. And so for adults for parents, for kids. We'll just bring it back to inflammation. Do you have any, is there a non-negotiable, parting parting words for our audience, a non-negotiable for anyone regardless of age who generally wants to live an anti-inflammatory life and avoid inflammation at all costs? Non-negotiable, as I was talking about resilience and flexibility, we have to be a little flexible. But, but in terms of, uh, first of all, I think it's helpful to learn if you can what you may be sensitive to. There's a lot of people sensitive to gluten. So generally, if we have a lot of people with inflammatory conditions, I'm, I may suggest a gluten-free, dairy-free diet. So that's one thing I would say is I'm gluten-free for 
six years now at least. And there's a lot of things that people have that they never think about for gluten reflux that so many people have taken drugs for and things like that or bowel issues and things like that. So gluten-free, dairy-free, things to think about. That's not non-negotiable. Food sensitivities, things to think about. There may be certain things that are specific for you. And then some of the, the basic anti-inflammatories, not any, even the esoteric ones that I think every, I have it. I don't know if you call Chris Carr as a friend. Who, who, sure, I know Chris. You know Chris. Yeah, I haven't friend. seen her in ages, but yeah. So she's a friend and, and, and I've, you know, me and Chris have done some things together. And she's the queen of metaphor. She's great. She's, uh, and so we, we, she came up with this thing called the Holy Trinity. We'd be talking about certain things during one of the, uh, the Holy Trinity, which was and probiotics. This is what I had said and then came up with the name of probiotics, vitamin D, and fish oils. All of those are anti-inflammatory. Very basic. Usually if I give fish oils, I like people to have a little vitamin E on board as an antioxidant. So, but those three things, if, I, if you're talking to me about everybody, I do think that, I mean, listen, there are some kids and some people who are intolerant even of vitamin D and, and probiotics and fit, all of them, very small percentages, but there are. So, but as a general rule, yeah, I would say those are three things that are anti-inflammatory. Dietary things, sugar. I mean, as best you can avoid sugars inflammatory. Gluten and dairy can be inflammatory. There are a lot of other ones that we have that affect the NRF2 pathways, the anti-inflammatory pathways, curcumin, there's veritrol. There's a lot of those others that we use. But if, but you know, and, and interesting enough, a number of these things also affect the integrity in a positive way. They shore up the integrity of the blood-brain barrier, which is something I've been lecturing on a lot lately. So, and that includes vitamin D and you know, curcumin, resveratrol, especially a lot of studies with that. So yes, I would say people can lead an anti-inflammatory lifestyle. It's also stress. So it's meditate or do yoga, exercise. Really key. I mean, I have to say, during the pandemic, I, pl I played four and a half to five hours of singles tennis every week. It was a lifesaver, a lifesaver, right? And but I think, and in your life, and what I said to you earlier, we were, kid you know, when I was kind of kidding, but not really. Love and laughter. You got to try to have love and laughter in your in your life because that's, in my mind, it's so good for the immune system, anti-inflammatory. So, yeah, it's, laughing is the opposite of being inflamed, like the raging person uh, on a road at a red light raging because the light turned red. So th those are some basics without even getting into all the other stuff. And, of course, obviously, if there are things contributing to inflammation, like autoimmunity or infections causing autoimmunity and the tick-borne and things, the mycoplasma, we got to take care of those. So, But I think it's not – without being rigid and being flexible and resilient – I think one can live with moderate Mediterranean diet. You don't have to be modified keto, which is the most, with some you do for the most inflammatory. You can eat a healthy Mediterranean diet and take a few supplements. I do think people should take some supplements. You're going to be dairy free. You need to take calcium, magnesium, and stuff. But I, I think I, I would leave it at like that, at least at the very least. That's a baseline that people could do. Love and laughter. I love it. We'll close there. Kenneth, thank you so much. It was great, Jason. Great to be with you. <laughs>